If you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Whether we physically grew grew up with the Old Testament, uh, perhaps you were saved young and you always had a Bible, you always had the Old Testament, you had the stories of the Old Testament, or perhaps you were saved later in life. Either way, we know the stories of the Old Testament very well. Uh, Everything from the garden, the serpent, Noah's Ark, the flood, Jericho, Joshua, uh, even unbelievers know these stories well, don't they? They know the Old Testament. And, you know, even with the ones I just quoted, I'm missing some crucial ones. And these are stories that capture the imagination. They're stories that capture the imagination. But obviously that's not what's most important about them. What's most more important, rather, than its imagination capturing power is their factual nature. That it's history when we're reading Genesis. It actually happened. And so we're looking at the history of of creation, and they're great stories. But even that, even the fact that these wonderful stories did happen, there is another element to the Old Testament that I think goes even deeper and perhaps is even more important for us. And that is that God is continuing to use this history to shape us, to speak to us. And so when we read about the narrative of the flood, we're shocked at the sinful state of humanity, right? The inclinations of the heart were only wicked, was only evil continually. So we see the sinful state of humanity and we're awed at the power of God as he floods and destroys the entire earth. We see God's power, his righteousness, his wrath, And then when Noah and his family are rescued, what do we see there? We see mercy, we see grace, we see deliverance. And so we learn about God from even these surface-level observations of the history in the Old Testament. But there is at least one other dimension, one other dimension to the Old Testament that is so crucial. And there's another, and if I could use Noah's Ark as an example... Um, it's something that kind of requires a key. And when I say key, I don't mean you need to be super spiritual or you need to have some special spiritual knowledge to access it. That's not what I'm saying. But it's something that's not immediately obvious to us when we move through the Old Testament. And this is something that I like to call the Christ words, the Christ words of the Old Testament. And so historical Christianity has always understood that the New Testament looks back to Christ, right? And the Old Testament looks forward to him and predicts his arrival. And so, I mean, I realize we all are looking forward to Christ coming. We are. Uh, But you see what I'm getting at. The New Testament looks back and the Old Testament looks forward. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorites, he always said the Old Testament was God's personal autobiography. And so we should expect that there are deep layers to it. So the opening to Hebrews, just a moment here, you don't need to flip there, I'll read it to you. But the opening to Hebrews explains this nature of the Old Testament as it relates to Christ. You remember the verse, it's right there at the beginning. God, who at various times and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the what? By the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Now has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So what am I getting at? What's the point in this introduction? We see here that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. 
He's the ultimate fulfillment of the voice of the Old Testament. Christ translates the meaning of the Old Testament, you could say. Or he, he, he fulfills the, the type, the prototype. But it's deeper, even deeper than this, the relationship of the Old Testament to Christ. Christ was the instrument for the very creation of the world. Colossians says that God created all things through him, and in him all things hold together. Christ was the instrument used in creating the world. He was the medium. He was the prism. You know, you take a prism and you shine light through it. Christ is the prism. He's, a, he's the loom. It's hard to find an analogy to describe how Christ is this creative power in the world. And so Christ is the key to the Old Testament. When we look at the great ark of Noah, yes, we see sinful humanity. We see sinful humanity destroyed. But what do we also see there? We also see deliverance through water. We see the ark being a kind of foreshadowing of Christ, who is our deliverance from the flood, isn't he? So this is the point I'm getting at, that the Old Testament and these stories in the Old Testament and the story we're going to look at today is intimately involved with the Savior. It is not separate from him. So we have these Christ words in the New Testament. And if you would say, Jamie, where'd you get this idea? Huh? Show me the money. Where does this come from? I would say Christ himself taught us to think this way. You remember the story right at the end of Luke, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus shows up, but they don't know it's Jesus, and they're downcast, and Jesus gives them one of the best Bible studies in the whole world, because he says that he goes through all the scriptures and taught them concerning the things of himself. Do you have imagined to get that kind of Bible study from the Lord himself? So Christ taught these two about the fundamental nature of the Old Testament, that it bore witness and looked forward to him. And so I want to keep these things in our mind as we are going to look at 2 Samuel 9. I want you to have that kind of lens. Where is Jesus in here? And so what we're going to do together this morning is go through the story like we're purchasing a field. We're going to buy the field, and we're going to go look at what we've got. We're going to look for treasure in this field that we've purchased. So the context for the story is important. You, you remember this first Samuel is all about David and Saul and Samuel and being anointed as king, Saul becoming the first king and to, being a total failure, right, in a sense, judgment on Israel. And then David enters the picture and wars with Saul and then you have the long saga of David and Saul's war. And finally, David takes the throne and things are going good. And then there's this conversation between the Lord and David. There's a conversation in 2 Samuel 9 where theologians call it the Davidic covenant is set up between God. God makes a promise to David. After all of these things had happened in David's life, and he had he got everything he wanted, right? He got the throne. He he everything he set out to do, he accomplished. And then he wants to build a temple for God. And listen to this. This is it. this is earlier in Second Samuel. God says this: When your days, David, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is a covenant made by God with David that seals Christmas. It seals the coming of the Messiah. From the the descendants of David, Christ will come and his kingdom will be established forever. So I want you to take that promise, right, that context I Pastor Stark pastors here, so I know you guys are all exegetes. You understand context is so crucial. And so the context here is this Davidic covenant has just been set up between God and David. So I want you to take that promise and set it on the mental back burner. This is what happens before what we're about to look at. But what happens after is also crucial. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And what happens because of Bathsheba? All of Israel is plunged into war. In a sense, it never recovers from David's sin with Bathsheba. So we've got the Davidic covenant right here, this massive, crucial, important point in history when God makes a promise that Jesus will come, that Davidic covenant. We've got this huge story here. And then we've got this huge story of David and Bathsheba. And our text today is nestled right between them. It's this little interlude. And that should get our attention. Okay, what's this thing doing here? It's a small little vignette. It's a small mini story surrounded by these massive events. It's kind of like you're walking through a museum and you see you see this little piece of paper. You see a book, for example, and it's open and it's surrounded by bulletproof glass and it's framed with steel and it's super protected. Good chance it's a pretty important book, isn't it, if it's protected like that. And that's kind of what the story is. It's nestled between these two massive events. Okay, what's going on here? So, enough prelude. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 9. Right at verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, in Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, from Lo-Debar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest 
that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. And as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Please pray with me for a moment. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel, your son. Thank you for his work. Thank you for drawing us all here today in Jesus' name, empowered by the Spirit to open your word. And we ask that you would bless this time. You would send help. And that you would get me out of the way. And you would let the glorious, glorious truth of Jesus that is nested in this text, that you would unleash it on this congregation. And that we would give praise and honor and glory to you. For we ask it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So, at face value, remember that surface level observation, at face value, we have this great story about grace, about this merciful king of David being faithful to his promise, searching for a descendant of Saul. Normally, when a family took over, when you had a new king, it was a pretty bloody affair, wasn't it? If a new family takes the throne, we're putting everyone to death because we don't want any contenders. Normally, it's a very bloody affair, and it was, but in this case, it's very different, at least in this moment. There is this kindness that David sought to show. David remembered his covenant with Jonathan, who was Saul's son, and sought to fulfill that promise. At 1 Samuel 20, this is what Jonathan uh, asked David to do. He said, you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. And here it is. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. You won't. You will preserve my my descendants. You will protect them when you become king. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David. So Jonathan knew David was going to win and he was going to ascend to the throne. And so he makes David. He makes his promise with David that David would protect him. And so. David honors that covenant. Having become king, and David himself received such mercy and such grace from God, David himself received that grace that he sought to show it. He sought to show kindness. David sought to pour that generosity out on others. And so the descendants of Saul, I mean, this was such a challenging situation that David had to recruit investigators. He said, bring me all my court investigators and go find me someone who is a descendant of Saul. He really went out of his way to fulfill his promise. And so when this Ziba is brought before the king and David learns that there is yet a son of Jonathan, that the son is alive and he's in a town called Lodabar, that call of the king goes forth. Go, bring him to me. We have to remember that in antiquity, the descendants of former kings, like we just mentioned, were put to death. And if they were still alive, they were feared for their life constantly because they were a contender. They had a claim to the throne. 
And so imagine Mephibosheth in a town literally translated as nowhere or no place. Lodabar. We could say Nowhereville or the city of nothing. You, this crippled man in Lodabar hears. A massive entourage comes into the small hamlet and says, you're coming with us. How scared would you be? <laughs> How terrified for your life would you be? And so to be summoned out of nowhere had to feel like he was being taken to the guillotine, that it was over. And David was cleaning up shop for the descendants of Saul. To walk the road from Lodabar to Jerusalem through the Jordan Valley would take 30 hours from foot. And so it's likely Mephibosheth spent that entire trip sweating bullets about what was going to happen. But Mephibosheth was not being brought to the palace of the king to be killed. He was being brought there to receive unbelievable, immeasurable, undeserved grace. So this is that surface level. This is what's happened in the story. And now we want to unlock those Christ words. And the first thing, if I can run with that is the Christ word of Mephibosheth. What do we learn about Jesus in the character, in the historical person of Mephibosheth? And I just have to ask the question. Aren't we all cripples like him before God? When we consider who we are before him, aren't we all cripples just like Mephibosheth, helpless? See, we've We've searched out this field. Remember, we, we purchased a field here. I'm trying to figure out what this text is. We know what happened in history and the context surrounding it, but there's, there is treasure here. And so we're applying the Christ key to unlock it. When Mephibosheth experiences grace, he receives hope. He marvels and he said, how could you regard such a dead dog as I? Apart from grace, we are without hope. Apart from grace, we reside in what God has called the domain of darkness. But when the Father saves us, he calls us out of darkness, much like Mephibosheth was. When God sets his love on us, regenerates us, and we believe in Jesus, we are being called out of nowhereville, out of darkness, as Colossians says, and into his kingdom, the kingdom of his Son. So the Father calls us much like David called Mephibosheth. And just as Mephibosheth couldn't do anything, we're the same way. You know those verses, those magnificent, terrible, but beautiful verses in Ephesians 2 where it says, and you were dead in sins and trespasses. What can a dead man do? Nothing. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. You could say we were we were more than cripples, right? And so it is with all those who are without Christ. It's clear that those who have not been saved by grace are totally and radically corrupted by sin. They cannot choose God or his righteousness. And this is that crippling, crippling power of original sin. And it's the same crippling power that even... In Christ, the believer can experience. We can be beset by the weaknesses of sin, even knowing Jesus. So when God saves us, he places in us a new heart and begins renewing our mind. We can now actually seek the kingdom of God. We have a desire to because we have that new heart. We've been born again. 
it's kind of like we've been sat at the table like Mephibosheth was, right? We're now sat at God's table and the feast is before us. Again, before this miracle, before the new birth, we were totally unable to do it. Ephesians 2, 3, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But that's not where Ephesians 2 stops, is it? It keeps going. And there's that, those great verses beginning in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. This is that merciful, gracious hand of God stretching and saving the cripple, us. So Mephibosheth was seated at the table of the king, and we, as Ephesians 2 says, have been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you see that connection? Christ has sat at David's table, and we are sat at Christ's table in the heavenly places, even now, if you know him. That is where the state of your soul is now. Mephibosheth was given all the lands of Saul to rule over. And I know you guys are in Revelation, so you know this verse, right? At the beginning, Revelation, uh, first chapter, verse 6, that we are a kingdom and priests to God. Those are our lands to rule over. Mephibosheth was saved by grace, and we are saved by grace. And this is that Christ word of Mephibosheth. We see ourselves in the cripple. How many of you know what you've been saved from, right? How many of you, even this moment here in the story of Mephibosheth, can understand and are praising God in your spirit for how he has delivered you and the state you are in when he delivered you? It's when we're here, when we see our crippled nature, our brokenness, that the gospel is the sweetest. It's here that that atonement of Christ is the most precious thing. When we see how far we've been taken by the gospel. So, Laura, how we wish to be like that lame beggar, the crippled beggar of Acts 3, who when he was healed by Peter and John, he leapt up. And what did he do? He didn't walk. He didn't run into the temple. He leapt into the temple, praising God. And if Mephibosheth could leap, I think he would have that day. So, in the words of Paul, a wretched man that I am, oh, crippled man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, through Christ, we are not just healed. We're not just healed of our crippled heart. We're delivered from that body of death and given a place in his eternal kingdom. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. So that's the Christ word of Mephibosheth. Next, there's that Christ word of Jonathan. What do we see in Jonathan in that story? When we move through scripture, it's kind of like we're walking through a forest. This is one of my favorite analogies for me to try and understand scripture. You've got a bunch of different trees but they're all planted in the same soil. They're all drawing water from the same source, the same water table. They're different, but combined the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And you've got complexity on a large scale, and you've got complexity in the small scale. The same way we can take a leaf and get a magnifying 
lens and look at it and think, wow, how intricate, how beautiful, how complex. It's the same way we can dive into the word and be amazed at its complexity, how interconnected it is. So when we're moving through the force of scripture, it can be easy to hustle and bustle and move at a quick pace. And if we do that, we can kind of miss these things. So we want to get a little bit closer to ground level here. We know that God speaks to us about himself through every single word of Holy Scripture, and it's no different for 2 Samuel 9. So the story of Mephibosheth is one of those easily missed meadows. Right? We're running through the word, and we can run right by it. So we want to make sure we catch it. So we want to peer through the brush here, and, and we see something truly astounding. There's a doctrine that we see in Scripture that is, it's as unfathomable as the sovereignty of God. It's as unimaginable as the grace of God. It's as weighty as any doctrine. And it's something that affects the entirety of creation, even the life of Jesus. And it's that doctrine of the eternal covenant of redemption, that promise rooted in eternity past that the Father was going to save a people for his Son and present that people as a gift of love to the Son. And so our salvation is rooted in eternity, in this covenant, in this promise that was made within the Trinity. The Father swore to save a people for Jesus. So stay with me. This is where theology and doctrine really rubber hits the road and affects us. It's life-changing. So David asked for a descendant of Saul. He asked, why? So that he can show kindness according to the promise that he made. And why? Why did he say? What What did David say? Is there a descendant of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? For Jonathan's sake, for David's love for Jonathan. This is that Christ word of Jonathan that we see in this story. A beautiful picture of how the Father saves us. If you know him, he saves the church for Jesus. And this is just that cosmic drama that is so beautiful. We can't wrap our minds around it. That the Father saves the church and presents the church to the Son in love. David and Jonathan earlier in the Old Testament explains here, 1 Samuel 18, that their souls were knit together. Uh, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. I mean, how do you have a closer bond than that? And Jesus said in his words in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And you see the connection there. You see Jesus and the Father being one loving each other perfectly, and you see David loving Jonathan and wanting to show kindness. You guys are tracking with me. You see what I'm getting at. We see in this story with Mephibosheth a beautiful drama that reflects how we're saved and why we're saved and for what we are saved. Really, just tremendous truth here nestled in 2 Samuel 9. I don't think we can imagine anything greater or more beautiful than this. Perhaps... Just one thing. There's one thing more beautiful than doctrine like this, and that's the cross. 
the story of David and Mephibosheth ultimately is meant to point us to Jesus. When we look to Jesus with 2 Samuel 9 in our head, we can't help but think of the way we were saved, right? How were we brought into the kingdom of God? How is it possible for crippled sinners dwelling in the spiritual darkness of Lodabar to be forgiven and made new? Only the cross. The truth for man is this. We have far greater issues than being physically crippled. Our entire being is sinful and hateful towards God. Because of this, we have not only inherited an inability like Mephibosheth, but we also have the rebellion of Saul. (laughs) We have both issues in us. If we have not been saved and therefore changed by God, we actively resist him. This may look obvious to others, or it may not. We may have been that person who was overtly and obnoxiously against God and made it their personal mission to wage war with him. We may have been that person. Or maybe we were that person who plays Christian and occasionally tunes in to the death of Jesus on the cross. Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So the Lord will not clear the guilty. Sin will be punished. And all hearts are laid bare before the Lord. And so if there's a sinner here who I could speak to, I would plead with them this day to consider the parable of Mephibosheth. To see that it takes divine intervention to help a spiritual cripple. Only the gracious command of the king can save you. And Christians who are here, if you are in Christ but straying from him in life, as we often do in the twist of turns, I would plead with you this day to consider the great love of the Father that we see in David. As David loved Jonathan, so the Father loves the Son. As David sought to show kindness to Mephibosheth, so the Father has shown kindness to you. And we often feel crippled in life. Christ was utterly broken on the cross. He died for the Christian. He died for his church. He did it according to plan and according to that promise, that covenant he made in eternity. Those majestic verses in Isaiah 53... Verses 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And here it is. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Why? How is this possible? Uh, we have the, another verse, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did he have this joy? Because our salvation is rooted in that promise in eternity. With his body shattered and the wrath of God bathing his soul, Christ called out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How could Christ say that? Because he knew who he was saving and what he was doing. Even at the cross, Christ was faithful to that promise.
So in conclusion, I want to ask, can anything separate us from the love of God? No. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like Mephibosheth, we enter that palace of the king, not only because he loves us, not only because he loves us, but because he loves the one for whom we were saved. He loves Jesus. We were saved for Jesus. We eat at the king's table and we cry out, what is your servant that you would show regard for such a dead dog as I? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 2 Samuel 9. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, the gospel. Uh, We were cripples, Father. We were spiritually dead before you decided to show your grace and your mercy to us. But Lord, this decision, this promise, this commitment is not temporal. It didn't happen at some point in time. Ultimately, Lord, this decision to save us was before the foundation of the world, Lord, where you predestined us to adoption as sons. Lord, we praise you. We want to magnify you and glorify you and glorify this truth in our life. We ask your blessing as we continue to sing and end this service. We ask that you would take this word, work it into the soil of our heart, and that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. For our glory, no. For the glory of your precious Son, whom you have loved eternally. In his name, amen.